you guys ever have forgetful moments that you just don't want to share with anyone that it's so bad? You know, where you ask everyone, where are my glasses? And they're on your head, right? Or uh, where's that pen or pencil and it's behind your ear, right? How about the rubber band around the wrist and you forgot why you put the rubber band around your wrist, you know? Or in your attempt to get organized, you've put places in specific spots, and then you forgot where you put them, right? I'm hearing amens from older people maybe only, but I feel like I'm getting older. Or you change the password, and the same, the same day you forgot what you changed it to. Surely none of you have been fixing the sink and you have the bucket underneath the sink and it's filling up. And then when it fills up, you say, oh, it's about to overflow. And then you dump it back into the sink. <laughs> None of you have had that happen either. Hopefully it's innocent things rather than leaving your kids behind somewhere. Hopefully it's not too crazy or forgetting. Today, we're going to see how a whole nation quickly forgot what they had promised to do and how detrimental it is to them. Why is it that we can quickly forget the promises that we've made? What can help us remember? And how can we be not so quick to forget in the future? That's what we're going to find out this morning in Nehemiah chapter 13. Now, I'm going to read the whole thing, okay? And you might feel bored or just like it's long. You know, I always tell David, if we're ever going to do something right, it's probably reading God's word on Sunday morning. So we're going to read the whole thing, okay? Please pay attention. I find it very fascinating and interesting. And so let's read it, and then we'll unpack it um, together, okay? So Nehemiah chapter 13 is printed in your worship guide, or you can look it up in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's something on the back table back there. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible. That's for you to have. Here we go. The last chapter in Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite, or Moabite, should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned and turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashab, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, who was related to, ba to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers in the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashab had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in our courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. 
Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chamber, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on, that, on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel for profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened till the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load may be brought up in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all the kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Do not Solomon... King of Israel, sin on account of such women. Among the many nations, there were no kin, king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons, Jehoda, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son of law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood in the Levites. Thus, I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. The word of the Lord. Well, 18 weeks, 18 weeks in the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, and now we have come 
to the end. How is your memory? If we took a quiz, a pop quiz, how would you do? I would love to think that David and I's teaching has been so clear and so good that you've retained it all, that all of you would get 100% on the quiz. And you'd also pronounce all the names correctly. <laughs> well, good news. We don't give quizzes like that at our church. But I do find it ironic that the major theme of this book is not to forget. And how often we forget even what was preached the week before. Here's this thing. In this book, we see that the people of Israel quickly forget God's goodness. How he delivered them from Egypt. He gave them a people, a land. And they forgot this. Because of that, they became exiles in Babylon. And then again, God came and he delivered them out of their exile in Persia. And here we have, through these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, 100 years of these people realizing the faithfulness of God, how he delivered them out of Egypt, how he delivered them out of Persia, how he has been faithful to them in rebuilding the temple and the wall in repopulating Jerusalem. We see in this book the large cycles of faithfulness, forgetfulness, walking away from God, God's punishment, repentance, remembrance, glory, blessings, and then the cycle begins again. These large cycles. And there are over generations and hundreds of years. Egypt, walking in the desert, coming into the promised land, forgetting God, God providing judges, kings, going into exile in Persia, God delivering again. These are these large cycles. This is the getting out the albums kind of thing, right? Those old photo albums. I'm not talking to the digital ones. I'm talking about pulling out the album, right? And you pull it out and you go, wow, I did have hair. Or, wow, we actually did have fun on va that vacation. Or, man, I did birthday parties right for my kids, didn't I? We remember by looking at these old things, faithfulness. Those large cycles of remembering but then there's these short cycles of forgetting. Again, we've just gone through that the wall has been built. There's been reforms by Ezra and Nehemiah. They've gone through a covenant renewal, talking about God's faithfulness. Nehemiah has been with them for 12 years, and we see all this happen. Now Nehemiah goes back to the capital. And whether it's just a few months later, some people say maybe a couple years the people have already forgotten. The very laws that they committed to following through with, providing for the house of God, obeying the Sabbath, not marrying those that worship other gods, they're doing it again in just this short time. Here's our New Year's resolutions. I'm going to eat better. 
I'm not going to watch so much Netflix. I'm going to exercise. Have we already forgotten? Here's the thing. This book about building projects, right? This is what we think about this book. We think when I mention the word Nehemiah or the book Nehemiah and Ezra, the first thing that pops into everyone's mind is what? The building of the wall, right? I hope that you might see that this book is greater than just the building of the wall. That the greater project that Ezra and Nehemiah were tasked to do was to help in the actions and behaviors of God's people. The much harder thing to change is people's hearts than simply the city's surroundings of a temple and a wall. Those things were still there, the wall and the temple, but here the people still forgot. If you go into our home, you'll see pictures of Aaron and I on our wedding day all over the house, a permanent remembrance of that beautiful day. But even though those pictures are around of the commitment that we made, the vows that we made, the beauty of that day, we can forget in the everyday what we committed to and how we might love each other and care for each other, how we forget what we said on that day. Now, I love my wife, and everyone knows that in marriage, it can be hard and difficult. And in the day-to-day, that's the real work. So the people of Israel, they are walking in Jerusalem. The temple is right there. The walls surround them. They have the clear picture of God's faithfulness. But they still forget what it means to live in the everyday. How do you not forget? Well, I love this chapter and the way it's formatted and structured. It gives us a clear answer at the very beginning of the passage in the first three verses how not to forget the reading of the word, the authority of the word. They opened the word and they read it to the people. And it said, what? Not to allow these people to come and be with them and bring other things that they worship into the temple. Now, I do not think it's like saying we will not take other tribes or other nations. Over and over again, we see in the Old Testament that people from other nations who converted to Judaism were allowed into the temple. Even in the very lineage of Jesus, we see a Hittite and a Moabite. What it's saying is, the way that these could taint the worship of God. And they needed to be reminded of this by the word of God, that they forgot how important this was. 
one way that we cannot forget is that we come under the word on a regular basis. Why do we preach the word every week as a church? Because we want to be just this intellectual church, because I want to show that I went to seminary and knew Hebrew and Greek. No. It's because we need to be transformed by it. We need to be reminded of it. Because we forget. Because we get so many messages from so many things around, like they were getting from cultures around them, that we need to be reminded of what is true. Sitting under the word, all of us. But as much as that puts that part first, which I like the order and structure of the, of the chapter, it then talks about how quickly it went sideways for the Israelites. So again, if you remember on the quiz, I might have given you two names, Sanballat and Tobiah. Or maybe I'd done a match of all these names, and I said, name the two greatest antagonists of Ezra and Nehemiah. And I would have had all these crazy names. Hopefully you would have drawn the line to Tobiah in Sanballat. These are the two major antagonists for Nehemiah in building the wall. Remember, they brought obstacles and tried to get them to say, oh, come meet with us. And they spurred up other people for them not to build the wall. Right? These are the great antagonists against Nehemiah. But here they are again. And this is what's happened. While Nehemiah has been gone, Tobiah and Sanballat have married in to the Israelite people. They are foreigners, but now they've married into Israelites. And how much have they married up? They went right up the chain right away to the high priest marrying into that family. They have weaved themselves into the politics of Israel. And what has he done? Tobiah said, hey, why don't we clear out this space in the temple where you store the things to worship God, you don't need that. Clear it out and we'll make it my office. And that's what he did. He moved his furniture in into a, a large room in the temple. This one that did not follow Yahweh, one did not worship God. He got a room in the very place where it's supposed to be the presence of God. The major antagonist of Nehemiah. At the same time, the people of Israel are neglecting to support the temple and the Levites who run the temple worship. And the Levites now, because they're not supported, have gone back to the land instead of doing their job in the temple. And that's the very thing that they had recommitted to following, and now they're not doing it. So Nehemiah confronts, and that word confronts is used multiple times in this passage. He confronts this furniture in the temple from Tobiah and throws it out. Many say this is like the foreshadowing of Jesus doing the same in throwing out the money changers in the temple. And at the same time, 
he structures Israel to make sure that they give the tithe so that it supports the Levites, so it will support the work of the house of God. How does this happen so quickly? How does it go from they committing that they would do this kind of thing to knowing that Tobiah was a bad person to Tobiah actually being in the house of God and them not supporting the Levites? How does it happen so quickly? How do they forget? If you know anything about church history, <laughs> this is our lot as humans. How does it, the church that was formed on the one who gave his life, that had no place to lay his head, that said we need to give to the poor and the needy, how does that church become a church in the Middle Ages where clerics lived lavish lifestyles, had concubines, had jewel-encrusted robes, and built lavish palaces while others lived in extreme poverty throughout Europe. How did that happen? That people that followed one that gave his life no place to lay his head, that they would live that kind of life. How does that happen? How does it happen that a church planning movement in the Northwest United States that started out with such humility, faithfulness, preaching God's word, led to one leader seeking his own glory, fame, success, running over anyone in his way and forgetting the very essence of the gospel that he preached like Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington. How does that happen? How do we forget so quickly? Because that is the natural tendency in where we lean as fallen humanity. To think the basis for our success is not reliance upon God, but instead the strategies of the world, wealth, fame, and other man-made tactics to get what we want. If we are left to our own devices instead of relying upon the strength of God, we will use the strategies of the world for our success. Because there are measurables that are easier to implement. They don't come with suffering. They don't come with pain. They don't come with sacrifice. Instead, when we actually trust in God and trust in the way that he works and rely upon his timing and his thing, it does take trust in time, in sacrifice, in suffering. Maybe some of you participated in the voyeurism of seeing the collapse of Mars Hill and listen to all of the rise and fall of Mars Hill in a podcast. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's basically a church in Northwest Washington that became huge and then collapsed. And this podcast, it's become, I think it was the second most listened podcast in America for a couple weeks. 
documents what happened. But one thing that was said that was very convicting, it said this, the regular church member in America would prefer to have a narcissist running their church. Why? Because we would rather follow the strategies of the world. Fame, success, a big name, rather than the strategies that God has given to us in his word by following him. Thing is, churches can go through these cycles. They can find their success on the amazing rhetorical skill of a pastor, amazing kids' programs, their music, their facility, and they end up accrediting their success to themselves rather than to the faithfulness of God. But it doesn't just happen to the church. It happens to us personally. That we think the things that we have in life, we credit to our own strength and our own abilities rather than by, to God himself. And how have we seen this over this period of COVID? Where we finally have been stressed and pressed and things have been taken away. And we actually see what comes out of us. God might be forcing us to see it all comes from him and reliance upon him. Again, I've used this illustration many times. I got it from one of my former pastors and I love it. You want to see what you're basing your success on and your reliance upon? It's like this. It's like toothpaste in a tube. And all you got to do is squeeze the tube. What comes out? Graciousness, humbleness, gentleness, patience, peace, love, joy. Is that what's coming out of you at this time? Or were you basing your life on your ability to have vacations and see people and have money in your jobs? Guess what? God is squeezing us. What is coming out? If a reliance upon God, then what comes out is our trust in Him, our peace our patience, our kindness, our gentleness, our self-control. Is that what's coming out of us now? It's forcing us. It forced them in this time when they had nothing and they were poverty-stricken. and There was no wall. There was no temple. They were back in the land and in that moment they said there was nothing we can do but rely upon God. But guess what they got now? The temple's been built. The wall has been rebuilt. They're repopulating the land and now they think they could have done it on their own. 
God in his graciousness and his love, he squeezes us to find out really where our reliance is upon. So we don't forget. Well, the passage goes on and it talks about two other things that they said they were going to do. They were going to honor the Sabbath. They recommitted to that. And they were not going to intermarry with those that worshipped other gods. But again, they've gone back on their covenant renewal and their covenant promise. They've taken this loophole in the Sabbath, basically, and allowed, we're not going to sell things on the Sabbath, but we'll allow these outside vendors to come in and sell things. And then they're marrying women from Ashdod and Amnon and Moab. How quickly they have forgotten what they promised to do. Why? How did they forget so quickly? Well, I think Nehemiah points it out. They don't think it's that bad. Oh, it's not that bad. I mean, we just have outside vendors doing it. We're not doing it ourselves. So we're marrying other people. It's not that bad. And Nehemiah reminds them, you remember when you did not obey the Sabbath in the right way, it caused disaster. And then it says, even Solomon, one of the greatest kings of our history, even he, when he married foreign women, it led him into sin. You might not think it's bad now, but it will be bad. Maybe you've been, still cannot get your head around that he's been pulling people's hair out and beating people. Maybe that's what you're still thinking about. You haven't listened to anything I've said so far. You're still stuck on, he pulled people's hair out and beat them, okay? Maybe some of you are there, I don't know. So address that, pastor, please. Well, I just want to say this. Um, I don't think I would beat people personally or pull their hair out. I mean, I, don't, I would not suggest that. That's probably not prescriptive for our time. Um, but again, why he would do something like that. I think nothing compares to the consequences that they will have if they do not obey. He's just given them a worse consequence. If they continue to live in that, it's going to be the desolation of Israel. So he's trying to wake them up to realize, okay, this is nothing compared to what could happen to you. <clears throat> I do a lot of premarital counseling. And uh, if you want to see horror on people's faces and uh, people that will not come back to premarital counseling is when I say things like this. And some of you might think this is, a, this is bad, right? I tell a couple... I, don't, I haven't told a lot of couples this. Unless there is major work done in your life, I don't think you should get married. And I will not officiate your ceremony. And if other pastors I know that you ask to officiate their ceremony, I will tell them they shouldn't do it either. Talk about worse than pulling people's hair out or beating them is telling someone that. Oh man, they do not like that. But the 
awkwardness and pain of that conversation pales in comparison to marriages that don't work through those issues beforehand. The awkwardness that I experience in that moment and the bad name that I might get from it doesn't even come close to the pain of two people who worship different things getting married. You don't even want to know what those conversations are like in my office. Those are even more painful. Oh, Wisconsin, nice. Oh, man, I'm pressing it, aren't I? Woo! It's like the unpardonable sin in Wisconsin, confrontation, right? (laughs) Wisconsinites, walking away from confrontation is actually going to cause worse harm in the future. I love you, but if you continue to gossip like the way that you are, it's going to turn you into a bitter person and it's not going to allow you to truly be intimate to anyone, with anyone. That's a hard conversation to have. If you continue to look at these images, it is going to cause major harm in your future relationships. Billie Eilish should not be the one telling the church how much harm pornography causes. We should be saying that ourselves. But if even when the society comes to the place like Billie Eilish to say pornography ruined her, even society saying that, this is what we should be saying as the church. I remember I was, I think I was 13 years old. I remember it was, the pastor asked all of the men to stay after the sermon. It was very awkward. And he looked us all in the eye and he said, if you continue to do this, if you do this, it will destroy you. Commit right now that you will not do it. I think that pastor did so much great work in my life. It was awkward, it was hard, but he, his eyes seared into me how much pain it would cause my future marriage if I did this. You want to know a way to help us not forget? We need people around us. We need the church. We need to be rubbing shoulders with each other, living life with each other, join a community group, be part of men's and women's ministries, look at issues that you are facing and join a group that addresses them and lets people speak into your life. All of us have sinful tendencies. And we forget how detrimental they can be. I forget. I can easily go back to these patterns. 
our tongue, our abuse of money, our overwork. We make promise after promise. And we forget and we forget. We need each other to confront us on these things. I find it very interesting after each one of these incidents, after each three that Nehemiah addresses, he goes to this phrase, remember me, oh my God. What is going on? Does he need God to look at him so he can bolster his ego and receive approval? Does he wonder if God would forget him? Now, you see, the thing is, what Nehemiah is doing is he's creating a clear separation between the character of Israel and their forgetfulness and the character of God and his faithfulness. We forget. God does not. Even with the temple wall built, they forget. God does not. And that's this book over and over again. Israel forgets and forgets and forgets, and God is faithful. He is faithful. He is faithful. Over that 40-year period, over hundreds of years period, and now over maybe just a few months, God continues his faithfulness to rise up someone like Nehemiah to confront them that they're continuing to fall back into their sin. Here's the thing. We see God's faithfulness that He gave us a temple that would not fade. He gave us a temple that would be destroyed, right? But in three days it would rise again. His very Son. He gave us a wall and a protection that would never crumble by giving us his son who defeated death and rose from the dead. That no matter what enemy comes against us, we have a protector that will save us from all things. God in his faithfulness remembered us on the cross and in the resurrection. You want to know how we cannot forget? You want to know the answer? By attaching ourselves to one that doesn't forget us. It's like that mom superpower. Right? It's probably why I married Aaron. Aaron, where are my shoes? She knows. My keys. They're in this location. How does she know these things? It's like that. We are attaching ourselves to a God that does not forget us. He knows us intimately. 
and his steadfast love for us that Nehemiah talks about, it works in those struggles we conveniently forget that we have. Through his Holy Spirit, to graciously and patiently work in us and change us and transform us. He does not forget. And if you are continuing to get tweaked on a certain issue in your life, that's not because God doesn't like you. It's because he loves you and he doesn't forget that you need to change. I love this, these two books. And I love how we talk about the wall and the temple and all these things and this beautiful building project. But we read about the temple and one day it would be destroyed. We read about the walls and one day they'll be torn down. We read about these beautiful people, Ezra and Nehemiah, and they've been forgotten by the world. Even our lives and our names will be forgotten by this world. But Nehemiah leaves us with this. Remember me, oh my God, for good. We might be forgotten by this world. Our names might be distinguished by this place. But there is one that will remember us if we belong to him. And it will be for our good. You don't want to be forgotten? Put your name with the one that is eternal and has rescued us and you will never be forgotten. You will be known by him and his kingdom forever and ever. Walls that will not come down. A temple that will be a new city, a new heavens, and a new earth. You'll never be forgotten.